You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer, the Associate Editor for Curation here at THE. And I'm Miranda Prynne, Content Curator for THE Campus. As the world turns its attention to the COP26 meeting in Glasgow starting on October 31st, we wanted to speak with a couple of university leaders about what role higher education institutions can play in the race to net zero carbon emissions and indeed in advancing the UN's sustainable development goals overall. So for this episode, we spoke with Katie Fleming, who is the provost at NYU, and Terzio Ambrizzi, who's a professor of climatology and superintendent of environmental management at the University of Sao Paulo. And we spoke to them both about the sustainability initiatives at their own institutions and how they're working to find ways to collaborate with other universities on these shared challenges. We also got both Katie and Tercio to tell us what their expectations are for the discussions in Glasgow over the next couple of weeks and what they hope comes out of them. So let's go to Tercio first. Hi, Tercio. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are chatting... <laughs> sorry, I should have left some space there. No, no, not your fault at all. Let's just do that again and I'll leave some space for you to say hello. Okay. Hi, Tetsio. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, pleasure. Great to have you here. Um, we're chatting just ahead of the UN Climate Change Conference or COP26 in Glasgow, which many are labelling as a sort of last chance for global leaders to act to prevent runaway climate change. And just this week, there have been worrying revelations about lobbying by certain countries to alter elements of the UN report on how to tackle climate change, such as watering down the need to move away from fossil fuels, which has inevitably raised questions over how much can realistically be achieved at COP26. But, There are many strong voices calling for urgent action, and these are backed up by the science and increasing amounts of research, which brings us nicely onto the role of higher education and universities in supporting the battle against climate change, which is what I want to talk to you about today. But first, before we launch into kind of meaty topic that is climate change, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and what led to your interest in this subject? Well, I think it was when I, almost a, a young guy because uh, I look at the weather and see, well, it's very interesting what's happening. Why does it rain? Why it's cold or why it's warm? So that's led me to the university and, to, and do a meteorological course, a bachelor in meteorology and, uh, and also in physics. Uh, and doing that, I followed the, the academia, uh, did my master's degree in meteorology, and then I went to England, to the University of Reading, to do my PhD with uh, Sir Brian Hoskins uh, in global general circulation of the atmosphere. And after that, I started to work with climatology. And uh, it's a long time that I've been working with data and numerical modeling, uh, analyzing uh, why the, the climate is changing. Even before, uh, people start really to, to talk more, man, just like a days, uh, nowadays the media is really 
uh, over the this team. But uh, in that time, I was already uh, doing some analysis on that. So in doing that, I uh, really got interested in analyzing more the climate change, its variability, and uh, what's going to be uh, in the future when we analyze the, the scenarios produced by the numerical modeling. And uh, uh, in the university, of course, I, I went up. Uh, nowadays, I'm a full professor at the university, and I was invited to be the, the, the superintendent of environmental officer of the university because uh, sustainability uh, and also uh, I, I, environmental conscience has everything to do with climate change. So we have to work side by side with the, both uh, areas. So that's why I'm really interested uh, in the climate change and uh, to uh, have a more uh, sustainable world uh, nowadays. Yeah, of course. And I mean, you've touched on um, obviously your role at the University of Sao Paulo, very engaged in um, its own kind of work around sustainability. So I'm interested to know what sustainability initiatives have worked really well at the University of Sao Paulo and why do you think they worked? I guess what lessons could be drawn for others? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So, I think the main initiative was the institutionalization of the sustainability uh, at the university through the creation of the superintendents of environmental office. That's happening in 2012. Uh, the environmental office is responsible for planning, implementing, maintaining, and promoting environmental sustainability at the University of Sao Paulo campuses. Uh, also, the, the environmental office incorporates the environmental dimension of the sustainability into the policies, plans, and activities of the university in the areas of teaching, research, outreach or management. Uh, it's also responsible for the supporting of coordination of environmental master plans on campus uh, for the cooperation and incentive actions uh, in the conservation of the university's natural resources. And of course, encouraging projects to, to promote environmental gov governance within the campus. Well, one of the main idea is to, uh, ideas was to stimulate the rational use of the environmental resources, uh, organize and support sustainability information systems and participate in the education process aimed at the sustainability uh, in a participatory way. So uh, yeah, it's, I think it's more or less like that. Yeah, so as you say, really kind of centralizing um, the efforts so that you know you've got exactly. a team coordinating it. And you've actually, in, in explaining that, you've almost covered, I suppose, what could be seen as the three central tenets of how higher education institutions can work towards sustainability, which is through their teaching, through their research, and through their own sort of campus management. Um, I guess as part of that, and, and you did touch on some of this, but how do you think institutions can really sort of support and motivate staff and indeed students to take more action relating to the SDGs, whether that is you know, in their teaching or their research? Uh, well, one key thing, certainly, uh, is to consider that the organization of the environmental policy covering different themes aimed at the implementation of the sustainability. Uh, so what we did was to have uh, a kind of three phases of action at the university to create the environmental policy. Uh, in doing that, uh, we, in the phase one, 
uh, we have we define the 12 environmental policies of the university for all our campuses. And uh, for that, we have we create working groups, uh, meeting mostly having composition of staff, uh, representatives of staff, faculties, and graduate and graduate students. And also, we had public consultations with the uh, with the state of governments and the municipality, research agents of São Paulo international universities, all were part uh, to help us to create these policies. Uh, the second phase was to define the sustainability plans with indicators and targets of the 12 policies uh, in the campuses and the development of environmental master plan for each of the 11 campuses adapted to their realities. Uh, so the strategies we, we did were, were, uh, actually was uh, to create, to consider an environmental master plan to have environmental programs in like uh, ecological reserves, pilot projects, and others, environmental inventories uh, linked to the green medical work, uh, and also uh, technical financial cooperation between USP and other partners. But I think I, I, didn't, ask, I didn't really answer directly your question. Uh, the fact is that uh, uh, when we consider the, the four uh, important areas of the university, teaching, research, extension, and management, each one of them was started in order to uh, motivate our staff. For instance, the teaching, uh, we approached the sustainable development goals in the disciplines offering, for instance, a discipline called uh, Global Practicing Sustainable Development Goals uh, Discipline. Uh, on doing that, we are attracting our students uh, to know more about the SDGs and uh, to create uh, environmental conscience on them. In terms of research, uh, we have uh, projects, we uh, create projects at the university that uh, we invite the students, uh, not only graduation, but undergraduation uh, staff members and researchers to propose projects uh, linked to the SDGs. And also in terms of station, uh, we have uh, created uh, fostering culture station initiatives linked to the change of innovations in the sustainability management of the university campus. Uh, we also have uh, public notes to promote culture and uh, university station initiatives linked to social inclusion uh, and diversity and the sustainable, uh, sustainable development goals in the UN. Uh, on the uh, uh, 2030 agenda. And uh, in the management itself, uh, this, there was this uh, call for projects. Uh, in a competitive way, we propose projects, for instance, to mitigate and offset emissions of greenhouse gases. Uh, and this year, for instance, we propose uh, projects to promote environmental management initiatives. In, in all these projects, particularly for instance, this one, uh, in terms of environmental management initiatives, we ask it, the, the project to contain, uh, first of all, uh, the particip participation of the students, and second one, uh, to involve the neighboring community around the, uh, the ecological reserves of the University of Sao Paulo, uh, in order to create this uh, conscious in terms of environment. Uh, I think it's more or less like that, but I need a, 
yeah wow <laughs> a lot of work being done I mean one of the things that I really got from that is the fact that you as an institution the sort of plan has engaged staff at all levels um but then yeah. and, and sort of obviously proactive efforts were made to do that and also actually your point on kind of inviting the students to you know these student-led projects because there is a lot of um research really and and just anecdotal evidence to demonstrate that students are driving a lot of the, the kind of demand for better sustainability initiatives or, or more focus on sustainability within universities. This may be a sort of um, a question that you've already answered in a way based on what has succeeded at the University of Sao Paulo, but if, if an institution was kind of taking its first steps towards putting sustainability really at the heart of its mission, what do you think would be the like key things it should consider or do as a starting point? Mm. Uh, I think the one key thing to consider is, uh, as I, I said before, the organization of the environmental policy. The university has to have a guidance uh, for the, the whole people, uh, the whole institution, uh, how they have to proceed in terms of the, uh, the environmental and the sustainability for the university. And uh, this certainly has to be some autonomy and transparency, uh, has to have some advisory and deliberative collegiate bodies and democratic and shared management. So in, in, in doing that, uh, we can definitely uh, work on the, the environmental policies and the, everybody knows what they have to do. Of course, we can uh, propose lots of uh, activities. Uh, for instance, uh, nowadays we we have built uh, just one example we've done uh, with the help of the uh, university budget was to create a biodigester uh, that is going to use, uh, in fact, all the solid and uh, organic waste from the university to generate uh, gas. This gas is going to be converted in energy because the University of Sao Paulo has a very uh, strong, nowadays, uh, political uh, project in terms of uh, renewable energy. We hope that in 10 years' time, 15% of all energy that the university uses are, are coming from uh, solar panels. From this, just one of the actions we have done towards this uh, point. So, uh, I, in summary, I, to answer your question, I think the the organization of the environmental policy one was one of the key things uh, we did in order to put the university in the direction of a, a sustainable university in the in the world, actually. Yeah, and it sounds like, as you say, that the key was is, is is creating guidance and a framework, but leaving within that sort of freedom and space for, you know, faculty sure. to then take that and kind of run with it and implement it in their own ways, rather than being too sort of, I suppose, dictatorial. Um, on, I mean, you've talked there about some of the the kind of more practical, I suppose, work being done at Sao Paulo around, you know, literally how they are generating their own energy and so on. That kind of leads me on nicely to the point or, uh, 
really about how um, to rebuild after the pandemic. Many institutions obviously are now looking ahead to a kind of post-pandemic future. Do you think there are any changes sparked by COVID-19 that institutions should embrace longer term in pursuit of lower emissions? Um, and are there any examples at the University of Sao Paulo? Yeah, that's uh, it's uh, important and very, in some ways, difficult questions. But uh, I think the identification of sustainability indicators is the key to understand the current uh, state of the university and uh, to ensuring that sustainability in the SDGs, for instance, could be taken into account in the process to return to normality after the pandemic. Uh, to doing that, in fact, we have uh, 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 academic performance indicators management office that has a platform that uh, use its use to monitoring the indicators uh, it supports the the understanding and the deepening of the institutional self knowledge in terms of sustainability but uh, uh, one question you ask that's quite interesting is that uh, i think uh, the in terms of the uh, embrace longer terms uh, uh, in pursuit of the lower emissions, I think one change was the decrease in the mobility between the campuses and the other universities due to meetings in participation in different committees. So what's happened is that the faculty, students, staff, and researchers become more comfortable using uh, online tools. Uh, I believe that even international events will have a more hybrid participation, uh, part online, part presential. And uh, with that, we will decrease the emissions of large amount of CO2. Uh, myself, for instance, I, I, I gave two uh, graduation courses and uh, both of them nowadays I'm doing uh, online. And uh, the reception was really good, and I intend to do that uh, next year, and even after uh, the COVID-19 uh, goes away. So uh, I think this uh, is a different action that's going to happen now in the future, and it's going to be very, very important for the environment, because we are mitigating the emissions of the CO2 in the atmosphere when we don't use our uh, cars, uh, and you, we don't go to long distances uh, to participate in one, in one event of one day uh, or two days. It's really lots of emissions of CO2 that you can save. Uh, so I think the university, is, uh, after COVID, we will, be, we will return to normal, but it's going to be a different normal from what we were used to, to think. Yeah, and arguably, of course, it needs to be a different normal. Um, <laughs> you know, if we are if we are to actually kind of succeed in this battle, um, your point about foreign travel, I just wondered how important you felt international collaboration and kind of cross border education is um, to kind of working towards the SDGs and climate change, um, and you know, how you think this can be managed so it does sort of benefit all participants rather than potentially being a slightly unequal partnership? Yeah. Well, uh, certainly international collaborations involving universities at different levels and developing of exchange experience is quite important. Actually, this is 
the XGG17, isn't it? So this experience creates an environment of knowledge and expectations among the participating institutions that incentive the improvement of the sustainability area. And uh, among the universal collaboration that USPs participate, uh, we can mention two that have very uh, different aims. For instance, uh, sustainable university disciplines. We have just created, I mentioned before, a discipline called Global Practice and Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which is a partnership of USP with many international institutes around the world, uh, such as Equator, Colombia, Hungary, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Tunisia, and others. Uh, the second thing is that universities participate on the Latin America chapter for the International Sustainable Campus Network. So uh, USP participates uh, in the steering committee for the creation of this uh, Latin American chapter. And uh, with that, with this creation, uh, we are proposing to create a survey uh, among the uh, Latin American universities to identify the main challenges and potential points of institutional interactions in the area of sustainability. So definitely, uh, this is going to be very important uh, I would say that one university uh, cannot war, uh, walk alone. He has to collaborate with the others to share uh, information to, uh, to uh, increase uh, together with the others in the world. Yeah, of course, to kind of amplify the work and find yeah. out. Makes sense. Yes. Um, this conversation will be broadcast just a couple of days before COP26. Um, I just want to end finding out what you hope to see coming out of the Global Summit, specifically around higher education and the role of universities. Uh, well, well, this is an important and difficult question. In my mind, uh, there is no doubt that the higher education provided by the universities is the key answer to achieve a future with less greenhouse gases and therefore to keep the temperature below the two degrees. It is only through the education that the university will prepare the future professionals with a conscious environmental preservation and actions towards the sustainability. Uh, I think this is going to be uh, the most important thing really if you will want to uh, decrease the greenhouse gases and the global warming. Well, that seems like a good place to end. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today and I hope to speak to you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Melinda. So what I thought was really interesting there is um, Tercio's thoughts on the lessons learned during the pandemic and how those had kind of an unintentional benefit uh, for the environment and any sort of sustainable efforts. And that's certainly something that Katie Fleming at NYU has been championing uh, since the pandemic is, is how they can continue some of these practices that have been beneficial for the environment now that everyone's looking to rebuild and get back to campus. So that was one of the first things that I asked her about when we spoke. Hello, Katie. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Lovely to hear your voice. 
Um, let's just get jump right in here. I know that NYU is back to in-person teaching, but you have said that you were hoping that a lot of the COVID-related practices that emerged uh, since March 2020 would stay after the pandemic, things like telecommuting and reduced air, air travel. Has any of that happened? And if so, tell us a bit more about it. Yes, absolutely. So I'm particularly interested, of course, in the sustainability dimension of things that have struck mm -hmm. us as innovations during COVID and I think should actually become part of normal life. And so far, we're managing to keep some of them. Obviously, we don't want across the board to allow telecommuting, but we do have increasing flexibility, particularly for people whose jobs don't have a face-to-face -face component. Mm -hmm. I think that there has been a real breakthrough in terms of people realizing that telecommuting isn't the same thing as staying at home and not working. We have mm -hmm. changed our travel policy so that we very explicitly urge people not to take short trips. Uh, we urge people to use the train for regional travel. We are asking people really to look at ways to reduce the carbon footprint of distance activities that they have. And that now is reflected particularly in our new travel policy. Hmm. And are you are you empowering them to do that? If, if someone asked me what my carbon footprint is of a, of a trip I'm taking, I wouldn't be able to readily respond to that. Are you helping them figure that stuff out? Most of our travel has to be booked through a portal, um, mm -hmm. an NYU portal that gives us the ability sort of to know where people are in the event, you know, God forbid there's some sort of calamity. Mm -hmm. uh, we know exactly how many people there are connected to the university in a given place at a given time. And through that, we're able to provide information on the carbon footprint of different trips. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some universities that we've spoken to have said that the SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, um, have really helped them kind of rally the troops behind a shared mission um, and given some credibility to faculty doing some work that isn't explicitly connected to the SDGs. Has that been the case at NYU? Did the SDGs come into any of your sustainability missions? To be perfectly honest, the SDGs are not sort of widely or publicly uh, discussed at NYU. Mm -hmm. I certainly mm -hmm. think that they are, uh, you know, back of the mind guiding principle for our Office of Sustainability, but they aren't something that we have used as a frame at the institution to, as you put it, sort of rally the troops now. Mm -hmm. um in a, in a piece you wrote recently for New York Daily News, you um, said that higher education is one of the sectors most dramatically upended by the pandemic, rightly so, um, but that it must now take a lead in redefining what normal is and capitalize on the disruption of the past year to drive change long term. I mean, the possibilities here are immense of the role that higher education can play in this. Um, give us a few ideas of what you think universities can do and how they can take this leading role. First of all, let's reflect on the fact that much of the world was able to stop dead in its tracks and stay home because of the fear of a virus, which, while certainly a very dangerous virus, and I've seen it up close and personal in family members, it is a dangerous and scary virus. Uh, mm. While dangerous, it's not going to result in the destruction of 
the world's population. Arguably, unchecked climate change and certainly unchecked environmental degradation are going to lead to that, but we haven't been able to stop in our tracks in order to prevent that. So for me, one of the really striking things about the COVID moment and all of the you know, new practices that were put in place is that we were able to do them because of the kind of immediate sense of fear. And uh, we haven't had that same immediacy of fear around this much, much bigger problem of climate change and environmental degradation. Although I think uh, the fear is becoming a bit more immediate um, with each season that brings us some new onslaught of a meteorologic calamity. So I think when I, when, I talk, when I talk about the way in which we need to really redefine what normal is, at the heart of that is the idea that we've just seen in COVID that we actually are able very dramatically to change our daily practices. I'm certainly not advocating for a change of the sort that we've just gone through, but we need to think far more radically than we've been thinking. It's great that we all have a little thing that says, please consider the environment before you print out this email. But have we considered becoming fully electronic institutions? Have we considered having policies where we are become in effect a paper-free institution? Uh, have we considered policies not simply where we say, you know, uh, let's not have lots of disposable food items in our meetings, saying we're not going to have food? You know, there are all kinds of ways in which um, very casually our daily practices, if you add it up at the end of each day, our daily practices result in a tremendous amount of waste and in mm. a tremendous carbon output. Um, and I think we really need kind of root and branch to start reconsidering uh, th those practices and using COVID as an example, see that it actually is possible for us uh, to really radically change the way that we do things. Mm. So whenever you, when we're talking about the leading role that universities can take here, you're really talking about kind of leading by example and making those big internal changes as opposed to, or perhaps you do have ideas about uh, any sort of external role that they could play in terms of the role that universities play in society or indeed scientific research? Uh, kind of all of the above. I mean, certainly leading by example, and that is um, sort of what I outlined uh, in the answer that I gave to you. But I think mm. that there's a, an amazing opportunity now, particularly for universities uh, in, the, in the United States, which used to have a much healthier partnership with the public sector than they do now. Uh, climate change gives us the opportunity to be highly, highly relevant. Um, and the kind of research, the kind of work that is done in universities around these issues has immediate um, applicability, immediate relevance. And I think it is tremendously important that universities take the lead, as many, many researchers at universities are, in showing the world healthier, environmentally healthier ways to live. Hmm. Hmm. 
Um, your institution, NYU, is is lucky enough to have funding and a, and a global profile and leadership buy-in to take on this type of leading role. But is there a risk that this sustainability becomes a bit of a privilege for lead institutions who can afford to make these right investments and take the right actions? Um, I'm wondering if you've got any ideas about what could be done to help smaller, less wealthy institutions kind of progress on climate change or any SDG agenda. Well, first, let's take a step back and consider this concept of uh, privilege versus uh, underprivilege or lack of privilege. Uh, if, if you look at what is going on environmentally in the world, overwhelmingly, it is the privileged whose behavior is impacting the less privileged. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see that just in terms of where, you know, global floodplains are in terms of areas that are going to be hit worst by the rise of sea levels, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, one of the sort of bitterly ironic conversations uh, that is going on now has to do with countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, like Western Europe, where we have been merrily burning fossil fuels for decades and decades and decades, mm. looking at other nations that have come late to the sort of so-called economic boom um, moment who, you know, everybody's rushing out and buying a car and we're trying to tell them not to. Um, mm -hmm. Well, this, th that's highly problematic. So the fact that it is a, you know, privileged institutions that can afford to make the right investments, um, the, the, anybody with privilege damn well should be making this investment and should be aware of the fact that um, it, it, in large part, it's, it's privilege that has begot um, the degradation that we see in the environment in so many places. So mm. look, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, NYU does have a, a certain amount of funding. I got to say that on a per capita basis, we are um, from an endowment standpoint, actually a, a, a relatively poor institution. Our peer institutions have far more money than we do. But one thing that has really advantaged NYU when it comes to sustainability is that we are so densely urban, um, mm -hmm. urban, you know, urban living, although it's counterintuitive to think this, is uh, it's much, much easier to have um, highly sustainable practices in an urban setting. People use less square, square footage uh, per capita. For the most part, people share heating, people share uh, everyone's horrified when they come to New York City to realize that most people share washing machines, share dryers, all sorts of resources in a dense urban environment are shared and people are, are used to, um, to resource sharing in a way that they really aren't in places that are far more spread out and have far, far more, more space. I'd say that's the thing that really gives NYU an edge in this and we're trying to be mm -hmm. much more aware of and conscious about the ways in which being an urban institution uh, gives us an edge, but also gives us certain extra responsibilities from an environmental standpoint. Mm -hmm. I definitely take the first point that you made about kind of Western, um, perhaps wealthy universities in those types of countries, Western and wealthy countries, um, trying to offload the responsibility of this onto to poorer countries. Um, and less wealthy countries. 
But I guess my question for that would be for universities in the U.S. who perhaps don't have uh, the leadership backing behind this, but still have a very important role to play with this. Any sort of tips or advice that you could give maybe to someone who is at perhaps a, a lower ranked, less wealthy institution, who, but who really wants to make a change on, on the climate action? Look, there are so many different types of institution that it's really, really hard to presume to give, uh, you know, other people advice. But one thing that we mm. have found tremendously important to this effort is bringing the faculty into the conversation. Overwhelmingly, our faculty and our students want this and wanted it even before the institution got on board with it. So mm. if you're engaging and it isn't just one one group of people at an institution who are the problem. You need to speak with the people in uh, in facilities. You need to speak with the people who make use of the spaces. You need to speak with students. You need to speak with the consumers. And we found that there are all sorts of practices we had in place kind of on the assumption that people liked it that they don't even necessarily like. I mean, think if you have a big student event, do you really need to have 300 balloons there to make it look festive? Um, you know, if you sit and talk to the students, you'll find out that, you know, nobody really cares so much about those balloons. So if you bring all of the different constituencies together um, from all the different nooks and crannies of the university, you're, you're likely to realize that there's a lot more that you can do than you thought was the case. Mm hmm. Our conversation is going to be broadcast just a couple of days ahead of COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference, before it kicks off. Um, where do you see universities fitting into the conversations taking place at that summit and what do you hope comes out of them? So universities are a, a, a wild and wonderful institutional form in that while they are embedded in nations, they aren't national for the most part. Um, they are by definition global, by definition multidisciplinary, and climate change is a problem that is by definition global and by definition needs multidisciplinary solutions. So not only do I think universities fit into these conversations, I think universities should be at the very, very heart of them. And what do I hope comes out of these conversations? Uh, real commitment. We have to have real commitments instead of a bunch of people saying how um, completely they all agree with one another that something needs to be done. And making commitments, unfortunately, is going to mean also instituting policy. And that's going to mean some people are going to be really unhappy with that policy. But we've managed to do it with all sorts of other things that uh, the world deems dangerous, you know, from seat belts to speed limits, everything around automobiles, surely, surely we can develop an appetite for having them around something that is so much more universally dangerous. Hmm. Let's hope so. Katie, thank you so much for your time and your, and your thoughts on that. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. A pleasure speaking with you. Katie made some really pertinent comments there about the relationship between privilege and climate change action, yeah. um, rightly describing it as problematic, but also, I suppose, a sort of moral um, duty of those privileged institutions to take action. Um, 
But she did definitely give reason for optimism in her point that also, you know, the rapid and transformative action taken in response to COVID has shown that we both can and absolutely need to start thinking more radically about how to change daily practices to be more sustainable. Yeah, I also really liked um, just some really simple practical things that Katie suggested that they're already starting to do at NYU. So not having balloons at ceremonies or cutting down on single use plastic on campuses or reconsidering what kind of food is put out as complimentary at a meeting and how many people actually really would miss that if that wasn't there. So hopefully that's something that listeners can can take away and consider implementing on their own institutions. Um, And also for any further ideas and practical insight, we have a whole collection of these from academics from right around the world in our most recent spotlight on THE campus. This is looking at how institutions can support the climate change battle. Um, You can find that on timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. Yes, and there is also still time to sign up for the THE Climate Impact Forum, which takes place on Thursday, the 28th of October, and will focus on how institutions can accelerate the transition to net zero. You'll find that at timeshighereducation.com forward slash events. And of course, if there's anything you would like us to cover on the podcast or any suggestions uh, of speakers or topics, please do get in touch. Sarah.Custer at timeshighereducation.com. Miranda, lovely to speak to you again for this episode. You too. Speak to you soon. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.